Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. To boost or not to boost your vaccine. The election campaign in day five, have you glazed over yet? Who is Canada getting out of Afghanistan? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Election promises, promises, promises. It's like I'm listening to Santa Claus while on his knee at the mall. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson! Man, we're not even to Labor Day yet. Don't be talking about Christmas. Please. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Uh, there's lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. And don't forget about uh, the podcast edition of the commentary. Waiting for you on our Facebook and Twitter pages. We would love to hear from you. Uh, more, uh, more blah, 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 blah about the election. Feel free to weigh in on that. We would love to hear from you. All right. Uh, another jam packed show today. We will get some of that, uh, election stuff in here, uh, as, uh, the candidates continue on the campaign trail. All right. Uh, let's bring you update on to, on some COVID-19 uh, information. There's been lots of chats about boosters and, and who needs them, who doesn't need them and how it all pertains to us. Let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, assistant professor, Institute of Biomedical Engineering, Department of Immunology, University of Toronto, and a medicine by design investigator is with us now. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi there. Doing well. So we've heard an awful lot in regard to boosters and such. I guess a lot of this information is coming out of the United States. Are Canadians at a point where they need a booster uh, yet? Because obviously our our vaccinations uh, started later than uh, what they did in the U.S. Is this a premature conversation for us here? Yeah, I think it's too early for it now. But in case we need it, we should start talking about it. I think definitely... It could be good for people who are immunocompromised or people really who you worry about who wasn't who weren't able to develop full protective immunity because they have a, a weaker immune system. So when would uh, it be good for, uh, when is it time for Canadians? Obviously, as you said, uh, we're certainly talking about those that are most vulnerable at this point. But even just the average person who started, say, getting, I guess we started doing mass vaccination uh, around May was when it really started to drive home. And then, you know, prior to that, January, February, March, it was certain age groups, certain segments of the population and such. So say you were given a shot in January. Uh, you know, and then followed up uh, 28 days a month or however later, it, you know, it end, you ended up getting yours. When when would the good time to be start thinking or, or when we should consider a booster? At what point? I think we should consider potentially uh, considering options for more doses for sure in case that's the way it goes. But let's be kind of clear about the clinical data that is saying whether or not you need a third dose. So some new emerging data from Public Health England is showing that when it comes to Delta, even if you're fully vaccinated, you can still get the virus, but you're still protected against needing to go to the hospital for mm-hmm. quite some time, at, at least four months, at least, if not more. So that, that's the kind of the, the question right now. If the vaccines remain effective and you can, with Delta, it's so different, but you can still avoid going to the hospital do you really want the extra boost could that be better used somewhere else and that's the ongoing debate but for now it's it does seem like it could be prudent for people who would just have a compromised immune system but otherwise the the data is still kind of emerging and it still can go either way to be honest 
Uh, are you surprised that we're having this discussion at this point? Because obviously, and, and this is all new, this is all uncharted territory, we know. Uh, but when the vaccines first came out, there was many, there was lots of discussion. You know, will this be it? Do we need another one? Uh, will it be like a flu shot where it will be an annual thing and, and, and each year we do it? Are you surprised that we are where we are in the sense that, you know, we haven't made it to that year and that, that we may need a booster earlier than a year? I wouldn't say I'm surprised. I'd say I'm more disappointed because we're in the situation because we didn't bring down global infection. Mm. And that's really what's happening. More people infected around the globe, just more chances to help the virus evolve inside infected people and then, you know, create these variants. So we could have probably avoided a lot of headache if we just got more vaccines out there and really brought those numbers down globally. And it's kind of, uh, it was just not looking at it from a global health perspective. So, But we also have to look at what's happening on the vaccine side. We do know that manufacturers are actually working on not just making more for a third dose, but actually making updated versions of the vaccine in, in case we still don't have global members under control. Uh, that was actually one of my other questions was uh, when we are receiving whatever the next dose is, whether that's uh, next year or in the forms of a booster, are we likely to receive, even if we're getting a, you know, a Pfizer or Moderna or, or what have you, are we, are we likely to receive the exact same vaccine or will there be alterations to it by then? The, the first thing we'll probably have available is the same vaccine, but a third dose of it, just because yeah. from a safety and regulatory perspective, perspective it's just much easier because it's already been through so many trials you know it's safe so that's easy for the updated version it just has to go through a a bit more of the safety studies to just make sure everything's okay before it comes through so it's not streamlined like it is for the flu vaccine for flu vaccines just update every year go 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 but you know coronavirus vaccines are still newer so it, it hasn't benefited from the flu vaccine process. Hmm. Uh, But is it fair to say, doctor, that the longer we go to get everyone vaccinated, as you put it, that's globally, uh, the more chance there is of a variant that uh, where where the vaccination is less effective, certainly effective, but less effective. The longer it takes to vaccinate, uh, the more chance there is of variants developing, mutating. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think Again, that, that's fair because we, as humans, are becoming the greatest engine of viral evolution for the coronavirus because our infection rates are too high. So I think we should be happy that we have some stability here in Canada, but we should never be surprised if policy needs to change pretty quickly in case something really bizarre pops up, and that's because of the global problem. So let's hope for stability, but not really expect it until we get global numbers down. Uh, we remember um, at the be well, what Canada has gone through and, and the conflicting messages through NASI or, or, you know, contradicting what maybe Health Canada would say or other officials were saying and how that led to uh, the, all the controversy around AstraZeneca. As these studies unroll, uh, roll out rather, and, and we find out, you know, how, how effective the Pfizer's are, the Moderna's are, uh, what have you, are we going to start vaccine shopping again? Because again, at the beginning, it was all about Pfizer, 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 Pfizer. That was the go-to, uh, vaccine. And now, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, from what we're seeing with some of the studies that you've mentioned, is it perhaps does not last as long as we thought or perhaps as long as AstraZeneca? Uh, can you shed any light on that? Yeah, so what the early clinical studies are actually showing is that Delta changed the game. And because Delta is just different enough that the current vaccines, whether it's Pfizer or AstraZeneca, it, you know, it changes the way how effective they are. So it turns out that you know, both AstraZeneca two doses or Pfizer two doses do still offer good protection against hospitalizations when it comes to Delta. And, and that's kind of where we are. So if you got two doses of AstraZeneca, you're still going to be protected against hospitalization against Delta. Same thing for Pfizer, same thing for Moderna. So 
you know, that early messaging, like get what you can get, it's, it's still pertinent. And it's just great to kind of see that data come out to show that, you know, for the folks who did get AstraZeneca, it's still going to protect you against needing to go to get a ventilator put in you. Uh, is it possible, again, AstraZeneca, different type of, uh, you know, more traditional vaccine, on, and not like the R, uh, the RM, uh, MNRA vaccines, I'm sorry. Um, could it be that it is better at reacting to the variants than the other two vaccines? Or is it just too early, early to tell? Will we find that information out as we continue this journey? Well, some of that early data is out, and they are showing similar levels of protection against severe disease. So right. from that perspective, in terms of just efficacy, protecting you against hospitalization, they're both doing a great job. So we, we're not really seeing much, you know, worrisome, any kind of thing like that. Not, nothing's worrying us about protection against hospitalization for sure. So that's okay so far. We'll see as the months roll on, but for now, it's all looking good. When it comes to a booster in Canada, when it's time for that, uh, are we? Is it? Do we know what it will be yet? Will it be Pfizer? Will it be Pfizer or Moderna? Uh, is AstraZeneca out of the game, out of the picture now? Will it be Johnson and Johnson? Do we know what that booster will come in the form of yet? We can kind of tell based on who's doing clinical trials for the third dose. We for sure know that Pfizer's doing it. I think Moderna might be looking into it as well. We don't really hear much about the trials for, you know, Johnson Johnson or AstraZeneca, so it's not totally clear. But for sure, the most publicized clinical trial is definitely third dose Pfizer. So that might be the one that gets presented to Health Canada first just because they're well on their way and they have their health and safety data ready first. Uh, we remember uh, through the early stages of this pandemic and right up, up until quite recently, uh, caseloads, new cases, that was a big issue. Obviously, we've seen them drop and then slowly uh, come back up, uh, and the hospitalization is really the key uh, factor here. Still, the majority of those that are being infected, from what I understand, are those that are not vaccinated. What about the hospital load now? How concerned are you as we head into the into the fall that we might get back into that hospital? hospitalization uh, problem again, and how are they now? So, so far, it does look like people who are either partially vaccinated or just completely unvaccinated are the ones that are needing hospitalization against because of the severe disease. So it, it does show that, you know, the vaccination, two doses are, are important to protect you from that. Now, when it comes to will the hospitals fill up again, I think this is uh you have to look at your local health unit and then also overlap it with the vaccine uptake for that area. So if you were in an area that has low vaccine uptake and you'll, you'll probably have a better chance of overwhelming that local, you know, health unit versus if, you know, the unvaccinated are just evenly spread out across the country, then you have less of a chance of overloading your healthcare system and you can weather it. So it just really depends on whether or not we're seeing these concentrated pockets and where they're going to get their help, which hospital they're picking. So that's kind of what we're going to look at. And and if the local health unit gets overwhelmed, they can expect to see more local restrictions or changes in local guidance. But for now, let's just hope that, you know, the unvaccinated are spread out enough so that it, it, it doesn't prevent normal people from, you know, getting an angiogram or, you know, going to the hospital for any other reason you know, because it's been shut down to, to help COVID people. Uh, it was, it's been interesting to watch the vaccination process and how Canadians have jumped on board. I mean, it's incredible to see uh, in Ontario over 82% with the first dose and uh, over 70%, I think 73% with the second dose. Uh, and, and I remember when this first started, many were saying, man, if we can get to 60, that would be that would be successful. How much farther, Omar, do you think we can go on this? And and, and so say we're at 82% now, I don't know, maybe, and, and I have, I'm not accurate with these numbers at, at all. I'm just throwing this out hypothetically. 5% anti-vaxxers, never going to get vaccinated. 5% maybe can't because of medical conditions, situations, whatever. Uh, that leaves us at about 9 how, how much farther can we go? It, I mean, conceivably, we can go as far as the amount of people who have had first doses, right? Because if that's our true plateau, then conceivably, those people are willing to get their second dose. Yeah. And 
So maybe that's kind of where we are, but I think we just have to do a, a good job of explaining, you know, the risk. I mean, these vaccines are safe and, and they can protect you against severe disease. And, you know, I, I can expect some folks might not want it, but, you know, it, at this point, it's, it's really important to think about your personal protection, not just you preventing transmission to other people. And, you know, with the current vaccine, and the way Delta spreads so easily, and it, it just it's going to make it to herd immunity harder. So we really need folks to you know think twice about their choices not to get vaccinated and hopefully contribute to the solution. Again, we, we have to look at it from a global perspective as well. So there are many people in the rest of the world who really want those uh, vaccines. So we've got to think about that too. Good point. Uh, how, how, how concerned are you? What are your feelings about the fall? I think at the fall, we can absolutely expect a jump in cases, but the vaccines continue to hold and do their job, and there are no new variants of concern. Then we can expect higher case numbers, absolutely, but hopefully the hospitalization rates will remain low so that their hospital use is not overwhelmed and you know, they can stay open because that's one of the reasons we needed restrictions because we didn't want to overwhelm the uh, hospitals, right? So with Delta, if you're fully vaccinated, you can still catch it, which means you test positive, but you're less likely to ever need to go to the hospital. And that's kind of why we need to attract not just infection numbers, but really look at the hospitalization rates. Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for your time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Take care, Scott. And now the commentary. Here we are, the first few days into a federal election campaign that no one wanted other than Justin Trudeau. And one of the most pressing issues is whether vaccines are really mandatory or not. This in Ontario, where more than eight out of every 10 eligible citizens have already been vaccinated with their first shot. I fully support vaccination for everyone and restrictive guidelines and less privilege for those who choose not. Just as some can choose not to be vaccinated, the rest of us can choose to have little or nothing to do with them. But as soon as the word mandatory comes into play, it sets off a completely different set of circumstances in a democracy involving human rights, not to mention legal technicalities, no matter how flashy it is for the desperate politician. However, for a prime minister who has called an election without any real reason, this seems to be the sort of distraction he needs to move the conversation towards his opposition instead of why we are all here. Something for you to remember as you head to the polls September 20th to mark your ballot for the election you didn't really want. The person you are dealing with at the polling station does not have to be vaccinated according to Elections Canada. It is not mandatory. So why is Justin Trudeau making such a fuss? See you at the polls. I'm Scott Thompson. Let's bring in Peter Wollstonecroft, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you, and good day to you. So what do you think the, say, top five issues are for Canadians? And then I'm going to ask you about the issues we've heard about so far. So what, what do you think is most important at this point for Canadians? Well, I don't even know what the parties think is the most important thing, so it's hard for me to mm. say what Canadians think. Uh, two different things, I, I agree, but uh, I mean, traditionally, health care, health care and health care, uh, and then the economy, uh, which encompasses many things, and then national unity, those are the big three, and then behind that would be relations with the United States. Um, but, you know, in 2021, we have to wonder about the impact of COVID-19 in Nova Scotia. The Liberals thought, well, they're going to thank us for the wonderful job we did, but that didn't turn out to be the winning card. And uh, and since I'm a, uh, a big believer that we're going through tremendous changes in terms of our climate, I would have thought that climate change would be up front. And I think it may be in terms of how people are thinking, but is that 
the first thing that's on their mind when it comes to their vote. Those are thinking and voting are not necessarily closely connected. Uh, you were talking about the Nova Scotia election. Obviously, uh, it was predicted to be a liberal majority, and it went uh, the other way. Uh, is that something, you know, provincial politics and federal, much different? Is that something that, you know, obviously people are making hay of that, that, you know, the tide is turning, or or that coming out of the pandemic is a little different than when we're in the midst of it? How significant is that situation in Nova Scotia? You know, uh, Canada, don't you know, is an odd place because normally there's a close connection between what happens at the national level and at the subnational level in in federations but not in Canada and uh, there's a quite a separation between provincial politics and federal politics uh, now political scientists spend a lot of time on this issue um, and and some people have tried to argue that there's a balancing going on that people will say, well, we have a federal liberal uh, government, so therefore yeah. I'll vote for a non-liberal party provincially to balance the two. But I have found very, very few voters in my time that even are aware of that issue, of that possibility, let alone to be motivated by it. Uh, some people have argued that when people are restless, uh, they express that in provincial politics, there's a mood for a change, and that spills over to federal politics. And it is worth noting that there's only one provincial liberal government in Canada as we speak. That would be in the recently re-elected government in Newfoundland and Labrador. All the rest are non-liberals. I think it's also fair to say that, that nationally uh, we are a big L liberal country, primarily because of Quebec. Uh, but provincially we are primarily a conservative party country. In other words, the Conservatives do much better in provincial politics historically than they do uh, nationally. I, I think we have to be very careful. And I noticed that today a lot of people have been comparing Nova Scotia to the United Kingdom in 1945. And you didn't expect me to say that, did you? No. no but what happened in 1945 is a widely popular Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, led the ah. uh, United Kingdom through World War II, mm -hmm. uh, goes to the polls, and is defeated. And my mother was a big supporter of Churchill. Was irate about that, uh, and I had to explain to her that that most elections are about the future, and Churchill ran on the past. And in some ways, that's what happened in Nova Scotia. So that's the lesson to the Liberals: is whatever you've done, for better or worse, in the past, uh, matters much less than what you are going to do in the future, or say you're going to do. And that's we really don't know uh, to. To, to uh, complete the circle here, we have no idea what the ballot question for the Liberals, the NDP, the Greens, and the Conservatives will be. I have somewhat of an idea what it is in Quebec, but even then I'm not certain. And each party is is organizing itself to produce a, bill, a ballot question that will lead people to vote for them on September the 20th. But as I say, in my mind first week out we have no idea what the ballot question for any of the parties are you surprised that we're uh, it appears that a wedge issue is brewing between the the, the use of the word mandatory and around vaccination um, you know, I'm not sure everybody wanted to go. Well, I'm not sure who wanted to go to the polls, but at the end of the day, do we, is, is that the big burning question at the polls is who's making this mandatory and who's, who's not making it mandatory when we all seem to end up, uh, in the same place anyway, is this being used as a wedge issue? Is this a distraction? Well, I, I think it's more of a distraction. I think the liberals, uh, who are very adroit at finding wedge issues are trying to impale Aaron O'Toole and he made himself somewhat vulnerable uh, and this may be some other missteps. However, uh, the difference between the Liberals and Conservatives and other parties is pretty minute, and it's hard to, hard to believe that on September the 20th, the result, or the few days after, once the mail-in ballots are counted, will be because of the question of compulsory vaccination. Mm -hmm. And I say that as a, a big advocate for compulsory vaccination. Yeah. Have been for some time. Um but I don't, I don't believe that that's going to get so hot. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think we don't know what's going to really get people going, either in a happy way or an angry way. Uh, it's going to be hard for the politicians to have rousing crowds, 
We're not going to have rallies of, of even the limited kind we've had in recent times. I mean, we used to have rallies with five or 10,000 people packed into Maple Leaf Gardens. There's a historical reference for mm-hmm. you. Uh, and we don't have those things anymore. But nonetheless, we're not going to have those exuberant events. It's all going to be through television. It's all going to be kind of uh, optics uh, through, the, through the electronic world. Um, and, and how motivated uh, people will be. I mean, it, it, it is noteworthy that the turnout in Nova Scotia a change election uh, was uh, an, a, an a remarkable change, unexpected change, was 56%. Despite the fact that in Nova Scotia, they do everything they can to get you to the polls, including mm-hmm. making you almost making you breakfast in the morning so you're not held yeah. up. You know, so even with all that, uh, most Nova Scotians, uh, or a lot of Nova Scotians, 45% of them decided to go to the beach. Are you expecting a low turnout in the federal election as a result I, of that? I'm Peter? betting 60 to 62 percent. If any of your listeners want to make a bet, uh, you can easily find me. <laughs> what about the debates? Uh, as you said, no rallies. How much emphasis on the debates, which I guess are coming up next month? Yeah, not too far away. And, and you know, debates have, have a very uncertain history. Most of the time, they're kind of blah. But then once in a while, something gigantic happens. Uh, now, these things tend to be fairly scripted events because people have a pretty good idea what the questions will be, and they know what their answers are, so it looks like uh, rehearsal number 10. Um, but uh, for, for Aaron O'Toole, it's critical because his recognition factor is low and not very positive, so he has to shine. And, and he, may, he may shine in as much as that people don't have high expectations, Defense, uh, Trudeau's going to be on his heels defending himself, and he'll try to be aspirational, but he's going to be hit with his record. And, and Jagmeet Singh is an excellent debater, and he may mm. you know, propel his party into, say, 22, 23% of the vote, which ironically is good for conservatives because most of that vote will come from the Liberals or the Greens. I think the Greens are going to be suffering. Uh, uh, because of their leadership uh, problems. Uh, and the People's Party of Canada, here's the question mark, will they be in the debates? They have to get 4% in the polls. It's not clear which polls they're talking about. And sometimes he, his party is there, sometimes it's not. If he's at the debate, he causes a problem for Aaron O'Toole because he will attack Aaron O'Toole for being a yeah. state guy. You're, a max, you're, a, you're going to vaccinate everybody whether they want it or not. And I'm a libertarian. I'm a freedom guy. Uh, no lockdowns, no vaccinations, no rules, whatever. You know, it's a free-for-all. Uh, and, and, uh, and he will make life, life very difficult for Aaron O'Toole. And the liberals will be very happy to have that happen. Uh, how does uh, Aaron O'Toole stop? And, and we've seen this for election after election after election, even even in, at the provincial level. It seems the conservatives aren't strong at getting their message across, and somehow it gets blurred, or they let the opposition uh, paint the narrative for them. Uh, a good example today: uh, O'Toole's out there making a, a housing announcement, says he's going to build a million houses. Uh, across the country, and he's getting peppered with questions about abortion, which, you know, I'm old enough to remember when they were talking about this in the 70s. And, and you know, I mean, Canadians have moved past this discussion. Why do they keep getting hammered with it? Well, it's because the, the liberals that are out there in their way uh, putting out that issue, and people, media people are picking it up. Um, and and there are people within the Conservative Party who, who are... Uh, uh, right to life people or people who are anti vaccination people there there are some people one of their candidates at least one is a conversion uh therapy proponent so all of these people uh whatever the merits of their views i'm not getting into that i'm saying you're very much the outside of the of the normal of the canadian thinking uh, at large and, and so the liberal but, but at the end of the day, Peter, there's extremism in every single party. Why do why do the conservatives get trapped with it? Well, <laughs> maybe because they have more of them. And and and, and <laughs> there and you go, there you go. There's the easy answer. Uh, and uh, in some ways, uh, you know, the People's Party of Canada is a problem, as I said, but also takes away some of those people. Uh, and there's also uh, uh, two other parties that have really right-wing people 
uh, as leaders or, or people who are speaking on their behalf uh, who are uh, snipping away at Aaron O'Toole's heels. Uh, why are there more uh, angry people on the right than elsewhere? Uh, but part of it is, I think, that we're going through a tremendous social change, economic change. And um, there's, there's a group of people who are yelling, the world is going to hell, and I'll tell you all about it. And, uh, and they're, they're normally found on the right uh, in liberal democracies. And so that's, and I know some of these people in, in my community, uh, and they are angry about a lot of things. They're not as wacky as their counterparts in the United States. Uh, but we do see some manifestations of that in Canada. And occasionally in an election, they get some fraction of the vote that makes you aware that they're, they're, they're not uh, I mean, a new part of the population. So the Conservatives, you know, I used to tell my students that, that the Conservatives had an advantage because they weren't splintering this way or that way, but the left-wing parties were always arguing about some footnote in one of Karl Marx's uh, yeah. books. And, yeah. and, and, and people would get hot and bothered about footnote 14 and what's the truth about that. Well, actually, right now, it's on the right that's got this fragmentation, at least in Canada, uh, and not so much the left, though. You could say, well, you got the Greens and the NDP who hate each other. Uh, and the better they do, the uh, harder it is for the Liberals and better for the Conservatives. You know, I've, I've always said, and, and, and you know, and this is probably because of my demographic, that the win is in the center. I had this conversation with Peter, uh, with Aaron O'Toole, rather. And, uh, you know, you, but as you have rightly so mentioned, uh, it, we are now dealing more in the extremes. So because of where we are in the world, uh, has that center gone? I mean, you know, I even look back to the success that the NDP had with Jack Layton, with Bob Ray, by bringing the party into the mainstream. Is yeah. that is that over and done? Is that another era? Well, uh, you know, and uh, the poet Auden, W.H. Auden, in one of his poems, I wish I could remember the title, uh, says, writing in the late 30s, the center does not hold. Uh, and that's a phrase that appears once in a while. Um, I, I am of the of the belief. Uh, one of my f- old professors said this to me, and it stuck with me. Uh, that what happens in the United States happens in Canada five or ten years later. I'm not betting on five rather than ten. Hmm. And and when I watch various media in the United States, I see all kinds of extreme views going on, uh, and I see some manifestations of that. And and so uh, to you and to your listeners, I say, what's going to happen in four or five years? Are we going to be going to the polarized route of the United States, or are we going to work with our mushy middle where we try to work out our differences and find a path forward? Now, you know, here's a vital point. In the United States, there's there's strong evidence that that things have become so polarized that uh, parents, Republican parents, do not want their children to marry non-Republicans, and vice versa. (laughs) Well, you know, like... In my family, they've married left-wing people, right-wing people, and I, because of my interests, I know this, but I don't go to them and say, for God's sakes, don't go this way. Don't you dare do that. I would never think of that. Uh, and, you know, the religious barrier has disappeared. You're old enough, I'm old enough to remember when people would say, do not marry outside of your faith. Absolutely. Now, yeah. now people would go, excuse me, uh, why would I marry within my faith since I'm already sleeping with this other person? You know, <laughs> so, um, you know, things have changed enormously in Canada, but the United States has become very politicized. And so people don't want their children, if they're a Republican family, to marry a Democrat. I mean, that's going to make Christmas difficult, isn't it not? I saw an article earlier today, and and I, and I can't remember where it is. I can't put my finger on it. But it, the, the discussion was parents are honestly having the discussion about whether it's worth bringing children into the world. And I almost fell off my chair because, again, I'm old enough to remember being a kid and watching an episode of All in the Family. And one of the characters, uh, the the son-in-law, was having a debate with his wife over whether they should bring children in the world because the 70s, the late 60s were such a turbulent time, the early 70s. And it's like, do people realize we've been having these discussions for decades? Well, yes, and I know people, I, I, I frequent a place uh, where there's a mixture of people and a lot of my older friends there 
are telling me that within their family there are people who are saying, well, I don't want to have children for the reason. And now, if you, you know, if you read the the recent report on on climate change, it's about forty thousand pages, so it's just a lot to read. Um, I mean, one of the things that's there is that that the average temperature in sixty or eighty years in Western Canada will be six degrees Celsius higher than it is now on average. Well, that makes Western Canada somewhere between Gobi Desert and the Sahara. Mm-hmm. So if you're if 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 you're reading the climate model literature, and you give it any credence as as I do, you would say that population is a problem, and having children is a problem. So yes, uh, I look at my grandchildren, who range from ten to eighteen, and wonder what their world will be like. I mean, I'll be long gone, but what will their world be like, and 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 what will they be looking forward to in terms of their children? So I think it's a legitimate question, and I know a lot of people in their 20s who said to me, have said, uh, no children, or or maybe one, uh, because, well, raising children is, is expensive, but also, mm-hmm. what kind of world is it that uh, is coming down the pike? And the, the Economist had an article two weeks ago where they said, we looked at all the climate change models, they're all bad, and the really bad ones are really bad. There's nothing good in a climate change model. So, so uh, the that in your tea. So the world's coming to an end, Peter. I I, I think uh, I think we're going through a very difficult period. Uh, I I worry about the rise of uh, anti-democratic thinking. Mm. Uh, I think about what's happening in Afghanistan. I see failed states in more and more places. Uh, I see authoritarianism uh, rising in. China, uh, sort of an imperialistic expansionism. I see. I see a lot of dark clouds, and so I, to my, you know, I find myself thinking along those lines, which is quite contrary to my history. But uh, there's a lot, of, like I say, a lot of dark clouds, and I don't see happy paths ahead. Has a global pandemic changed our perspective on things? We don't know, uh, and and. Um, we seem to be seem to be very innocent because we're spending an enormous amount of money now to address various problems, and that's going to have to be paid and handled down the pike. Um, it's raised serious questions about uh, the ability of public health people to speak to large fractions of population about the necessity of addressing what's a common problem. I feel very angry that if I walk down the street and I'm wearing my mask and I'm vaccinated and so on, that if I run into somebody who has not attended at all to their vaccination, that they may give me COVID-19. Now, I won't be as bad to hit as if I had been unvaccinated, mm-hmm. but we're creating, as uh, we see in the United States, their hospitals are overrun with people who were not vaccinated and are now taking up room, and so people cannot get care for their heart problems or their cancer issues and all those other things. And it's because they have exercised their right to make their personal health choices. And I say, well, you know, one of the things we've learned a long time ago is that uh, sick people affect other people. It's a common problem, not a private problem. Peter Wollstonecroft with us, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, talking uh, everything from election to a global pandemic and how the world is as a result of. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we have uh, certainly seen, witnessed what has been going on in Afghanistan in the last several days, the horrific uh, images we saw several days ago of people, uh, all kinds of desperation to get out of there. Uh, and now uh, it, it certainly looks like the airport has been secure, and now Canada and the Prime Minister has uh, just confirmed all of this, that there'll be two uh, C-17s making regular flights in and out of Afghanistan, uh, trying to pluck people out. That's about all the details we know about uh, that scenario at that time. But where do they go? Where are they going to end up? Let's bring in Emily Reagan-Wills, Associate Professor, University of Ottawa, Political Studies, and with us now. Emily, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm glad to be here. 
All right, so we're hearing now that uh, Canadian Armed Forces are on the ground in Afghanistan, and there will be regular flights going in and out. Is, is there anything you can tell us about this flights? Any idea how many uh, or how often this will happen, or is it just hit and miss, so, see what you can so do? There's no, there's no news that has become public. I'm certain that my colleagues who are more closely connected to IRCC probably have a little bit more news. But the uh, what I've seen from talking to various colleagues, both in the U.S. and in Canada, is that really everybody is playing it by ear right now because, um, you know, you kind of have to assess the situation every time you decide to take on a plane. And there's also a huge paperwork problem um, that needs to be dealt with at every moment when you're dealing with an evacuation like this. So... I'm very heartened by the fact that um, the planes are being regularly scheduled. I think that's the best first step that we could make because it imposes some kind of structure on what's been really just a catastrophic evolving situation. But how they're going to pull that off over the next few days is going to be complicated. So who is Canada getting out? Who is getting on uh, those planes? So the priorities kind of come in a couple different categories. The first is Canadian citizens, and that includes Canadian citizens who uh, were, I believe everyone associated with the embassy, for example, has already been um, evacuated, but now they're moving on to civilians who were visiting family, doing work, um, conducting business in Afghanistan. And so those folks are the first priority, and it certainly has taken a few days, really, for global affairs to get contact with everybody. Um, the second priority is people who have connections to either the Canadian Armed Forces or who have worked for Canadian organizations. Um, and, of course, the problem with that is making sure that those people can be identified and that they can get to Kabul and then get to the airport. Obviously, it's a multi-staged process. Uh, What's and- unclear at this point, yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. So so part of what's unclear at this point is that Canada has made a commitment to resettling 20,000 Afghan refugees as a part of this evacuation. It's not 100% clear whether this counts the um, Afghan civilians and um, former people who have worked with the armed forces or NGOs who are being evacuated now, or if that's going to include more people, human rights defenders, um, judges, academics, people who are really are at risk in the coming government. Uh, that was the next question, Emily, was uh, any idea of numbers? And is that, is that uh, we're going to take 20,000 or we're, 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 we've got 20,000 Canadians, people associated with uh, Canadian Armed Forces and such, or we're going to get all those people and then everybody else up to 20,000? My understanding of it is that the 20,000 has been announced as a target But when we look at past emergency evacuations and short-term big uh, increases in uh, who counts as somebody part of a promise, we get changing answers. For instance, um, the target that um, Justin Trudeau announced when he was a candidate back in 2015 of Syrians to bring in, he first announced as if they would be government-sponsored refugees and then said, we're counting privately sponsored refugees towards that number, effectively lowering the number of refugees that Canada had committed to. There has been no specification yet from the government. And I, in fact, and a bunch of other colleagues working in forced migration studies have put together an open letter. We believe the proper option now is to commit to 20,000 government-sponsored refugees and then allow for uh, privately sponsored refugees above that total in later phases. Private sponsorship isn't something you can launch right this moment, but it's certainly something that's going to be needed in the days to come. Uh, uh, Have there been planes, how many planes or or people have gotten out since uh, those horrific images that we saw a couple of days ago? How many, are, are those still Canadians and members of the embassy that are coming out after that incident? It is unclear at this point. I think there are valid security reasons not to give too much information about who is going where. Um, And so all of that information is happening back channel because it's needed to both because they don't want to create panic. They don't want to end up with people going to the airport in a dangerous situation when there's no room for them. But also because I am certain the people on the ground directing this are having to make very quick decisions. 
So um, none of this is public. That makes sense because of the crisis situation. But I'm hoping that within a week or two, we're going to see more clarity about what has been happening. So the planes leave Kabul. Uh, obviously, or do we know where they're going? Because as you mentioned, there's ID, there's processing that has to be done. So they get them out of harm's way. What happens then? Where do they go? What's the process? So this is unusual because uh, we haven't had one of these big evacuations for a while into Canada. Um, and as I said, the answers aren't public yet about where people arrive. But I think mm-hmm. the two examples we can look to is uh, what happened with Syrians in 2015, 2016, which is that um, chartered flights were or specific flights for those folks. Those were civilian instead of military. People were flown to major airports and processed there. Um, but the other example that's very clear is what's happening in the U.S., which is that as the U.S. evacuates people, they are flown into military bases, processed there, and then once processed in those military bases, um, they are handed over and kind of kind of moved around the country to go to individual resettlement organizations. So we haven't yet had an announcement of you know, that I've seen of the first Afghan refugees arriving on Canadian soil. Um, but my guess is they're probably somewhere in at an Air Force base or something being processed right now. That's probably what's happening. But as I said, this is not something that's been made public yet. You talked about the Syrian evacuation. What can we learn from that moving forward with this situation? Well, I think one of the first things we can learn is that we waited an extremely long time to begin increasing our response. And that resulted in thousands of deaths and in incredible pressure on the countries surrounding Syria. So even though the civil war began in 2011 and refugees had been in very large numbers in neighboring countries like Turkey, Lebanon, and Iraq, for that entire period, we really didn't start helping people come quickly until 2015, 2016. And so that is one of the reasons that, you know, I'm very heartened to see an early commitment from the liberals on this. One of the things we do know about how conflicts that produce refugees happen is that it's very likely that the situation of people needing to be refugees is not short term. We are not facing a situation where everybody who needs to get out of Afghanistan today will be able to turn around and go home in six months. Right. It's much more likely that we're facing multi-year waves of refugees and getting people, particularly the people at highest risk, out quickly and efficiently at the beginning is going to save lives. So I think the speed on which they're moving is a lesson that has been learned from previous waves of resettlement. Um, I think the other major thing that I think Canada has been a leader on and can continue to be a leader on is in providing economic support to neighboring countries. The majority of refugees or people in need of international protection, they first of all, they may not cross an international border, and if they do, they're likely to do it to neighboring countries. So, for instance, Pakistan already has a huge number of Afghan refugees. So does Iran, right? Um, certainly, you get Lebanon and Turkey for the Syrians. And what you see is that supporting those countries of first reception in seeking durable solutions to refugees' issues is central. And so Canada can, Canada has played a role in this, and I think Canada should just intensify this role of providing support to neighboring countries who are going to be carrying a lot of the burden of this in the next few years. Many have commented over the last couple of weeks, a uh, week or so, how quickly this all happened. Many saying they didn't didn't see this coming. Uh, many have said, uh, echoed what you have said, that this should have started much earlier. Was there the demand, the foresight that uh, earlier to be bringing uh, all of these people out? Did they? Was the demand there to get them out way back when? So there have always been good reasons for people who particularly were involved in working with um, with whether it's foreign governments, whether it's with uh, foreign militaries or foreign NGOs. Um, there's always been a need for some of those people to be resettled. Um, and many of them, in fact, have pending applications, right? Mm-hmm. So, in fact... They've been in the process of trying to resettle to Canada. Right. Others are people who have family in Canada and have been in the process of trying to resettle. 
what happened so quickly is that the military landscape changed, right? And so part of what we're seeing is people who should have been processed a while ago were having to process very quickly as an emergency, and people who might not have needed it all of a sudden become very much in need. So it's a dual pressure that's creating this particular crisis right now. Many are talking about the U.S. and pulling out and pulling out too quickly, although this has certainly been discussed for a long time. As you sit back now, Emily, and watch this, uh, hindsight we know is twenty twenty. How could this have been avoided? Um, well, you know, if you don't want to go all the way back to 2001 and start changing history, though I think yeah. that would have been a fine time to make different decisions, then I think really what you need to look at is ensuring that the Afghan government, instead of becoming a kind of means of uh, cronyism in many cases, in particular in collaboration with uh, Western uh, security forces, right, you produced a situation where the government was not going to be capable of managing a full-scale Taliban assault. The reason the Taliban have been able to retake the country so quickly is that the government never established credibility with the people. And part of that was because mm. of its foreign imposition and as well um, the, the kind of lack of ability to improve people's lives um, that it exhibited. And I think if, uh, if Western security forces who had been engaged had been able to more successfully support the growth of real Afghan sovereignty instead of a situation where uh, kind of you get this government that no one's really going to be willing to fight for, I think you might have a situation where the Taliban would not have been able to take so, so much of the country so quickly. But it's very challenging. Um, it's very hard to figure out how to simultaneously meet security objectives with humanitarian objectives, my money is always going to be on the side of humanitarian objectives, but unfortunately that's not how much foreign policy works. We've certainly seen the charm offensive uh, from the Taliban and how they're trying to uh, you know, establish themselves uh, with more legitimacy this time than, than the first 20 years. Uh, what is Taliban 2.0 like, uh, you know, to, to repeat a, a catchphrase? What is, do, we, do we look forward to more of what was happening 20 years ago, or is this all smoke and mirrors? What is the future of Afghanistan? So there are two possibilities, and it is absolutely impossible to tell which one of them we're going to get right now. The first is that the Taliban knows how to uh, put on a performance for an international audience and to a certain extent a domestic audience. And so they seem very, very likely that much of their, oh, we're going to be more liberal this time, or, oh, we're going to allow this kind of thing to happen, um, that that may be a performance for an international audience. And in fact, we're starting to see some moments where that performance sits next to reports from people on the ground that they said one thing, but now they're doing another. So that's the kind of performative aspect of it is one thing. The, the less likely chance, though over the medium term we may see some of it, is that sometimes actually having to rule does serve to moderate radical parties' politics. Right. Because if part of what you need to do is ensure that the people keep supporting you, there's a limit to how much you can suppress them. So it's possible that if, you know, Taliban never actually was the government in Afghanistan before. They were always contesting for governance. And there was a a kind of rump government that ruled very little of the country, but that remained the international representative. And so if the Taliban choose to try to figure out how to act like a state this time. That means having to make sure that the people are not in constant rebellion against you, which might mean being less fundamentalist in orientation. And I think we see the possibility of this with the fact that Afghan civilians are out in the street today celebrating independence from Britain and doing so in the name of the state of Afghanistan and not the Taliban, right? And so it's possible they as a political organization may be able to shift course. It's very possible, and I think very likely, that much of the performance they're putting on right now of relative tolerance is absolutely about appealing to international audiences and doesn't represent a real ideological change.
Uh, 20 years of training, adding weapon, uh, weaponry, trying to uh, provide some sort of infrastructure uh, for, for leadership and such, and, and that ends up falling. The whole thing crumples in weeks. So the next time we're going to spend 20 years in a country, do we reevaluate all of this? Do we, you know, as you said, you can go in for so long, as soon as you walk out, uh, everything starts leaking again. Uh, was this a waste of 20 years? It's hard to think of it as a waste because I know for all of us in uh, countries that participated in the international action, we want to believe that the lives and energy and money that spent did some good. And at and, the end of the day, and at the end yeah. of the day, it's twenty years later, and there's a generation there that knows what this is all about. So it's not the same Afghanistan it was twenty right. years it ago. Is, it is not the same Afghanistan, and I think both young people um, have a kind of very nuanced and complex sense of critiques both of the Western-supported government that has fallen and of the Taliban, that both of those, the, the young people and the, the educated people, have a strong critique of. I think one of the lessons we need to learn is not to assume that military action can support political change, right? Mm. Military action on its own serves military purposes only. And so while I think a lot of uh, people thinking in 2001 about the reconstruction of Afghanistan were thinking about the redemocratization of Germany after World War II or the democratization of uh, Japan after World War II. Mm-hmm. That's actually a very different circumstance. And yeah. the kind of foreign invasion and, and uh, uh, placement in power of a regime by international organizations that happened in 2001 in Afghanistan that happened in Iraq, those are much less likely to succeed. So I think this should give us pause about whether or not this kind of military action is worth it in the future. And if we really want to support democratic countries, positive social change for people's human rights in countries struggling with democratic governance, we need to develop a different toolbox because military invasion is unlikely to get us where we need to go. Emily Reagan-Wills with his associate professor, University of Ottawa Political Studies, talking about Afghanistan and uh, Canada's plans to have regular flights to uh, get evacuees out as soon as possible. Emily, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. All right, we're going to get a legal aspect of uh, vaccine mandates and employment. And I, I, I know I come across like an anti-vaxxer here, and I'm not. I'm fully vaccinated. I encourage everybody to be fully vaccinated. I think all the teachers, all the healthcare workers, they should all be fully vaccinated. Um, but I think we're getting hung up on a word mandatory. And I think you have one side of the political spectrum that says it's got to be mandatory. And if you don't do it, you're going to face consequences. And then the other side saying we want you to get it. You should get it, but it's not mandatory. And if you don't get it, you got to get a doctor's note and you got to go through education and you got to get a stick shoved up your nose and testing on a regular basis. And those un, uh, those consequences that the federal government's not talking about is exactly the same thing the opposition is talking about. You'll have to go through rigorous testing. You'll have to go through education. And a doctor's note explaining why you're not getting vaccinated. So what is really mandatory? And are we getting caught up in a word which in the discussion is really irrelevant considering we are already way over 82% of the population in Ontario eligible with the first dose. Let's bring in Mackenzie Irwin, associate with Sam Furo, Tamarkin LLP, and is with us now. Mackenzie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Good afternoon. Uh, Mackenzie, I don't want this to come across like I'm an anti-vaxxer. I don't want it to come across like I'm not encouraging everybody to get out there and roll up their sleeve and get their vaccination. But we seem to, especially now that we're in an election, getting hung up on the word mandatory. Uh, Some are saying it's mandatory. Some are saying it's mandatory unless you have this, that, and the other. But are they not all the same? What, when we say mandatory, what are our rights? What legally can uh, not only employees but employers do? Yeah, so we're at this really exciting juncture in time right now where the government is really stepping up and, and is speaking out and, and making uh, passing policies, uh, mandatory vaccination policies for certain, um, for certain industries and certain employees. Um, 
But as it stands, you know, currently, there is an, an employer cannot um, implement its own mandatory vaccination policy unless the government has spoken on that industry. So um, I say we're at that interesting juncture right now because, you know, t- yesterday and last Friday, we've had uh, various levels of government um, uh, uh, implementing mandatory vaccination policies for certain industries, and they have carved out certain industries. Um, employers in those industries will be able to implement mandatory vaccination policies. Uh, but as it stands right now, employers outside of those um, of those industries uh, will not be able to unilaterally implement their own um, mandatory vaccine policies. So we're talking, obviously, about health care and education. Those have been talked about. The Prime Minister has also said for all federal employees, the Mayor of Toronto said for all municipal employees there. Uh, is it, where, where do you stand on that? Yeah, so, I mean, those, obviously, when once the government has spoken on those those carved-out industries, a mandatory vaccination policy is, is uh, uh, will apply in those industries, but outside of those industries are the ones where we're kind of in this tricky situation where the employers can't go above and beyond the government um, and implement it on their own. So what about federal, you know, we, when we hear about federal employees, uh, the Prime Minister said all in federal employees, would that would, you know, I mean, whether you're in health care or uh, in education or, or, or what have you, or would that be all, that would be all federal employees, would it not? Is, 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 are you able to do that? Yeah, so there will have to be um, some sort of carve out for certain um, human rights legis- uh, violations. There, you know, there are certain individuals who are unable to uh, to have a vaccine for, for example, a disability or, yeah. or religious purposes. Um, and those people will there will have to be certain exemptions for those people. But um, but yeah, certainly they can start implementing um, mandatory vaccination policies. I mean, we even hear, and we often hear the comparison with schools. Well, if you, your kid wants to go to school, they have to get the mandatory vaccine, which is what we all know. But there's also scenarios where the parents have jumped through those hoops, similar to what we're asking for, for people to do here, whether it's doctor, doctor, uh, doctor documentation, whether it's more education, whether in the case of COVID-19, it's testing. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not really mandatory. So uh, am I accurate there? Like, again, there's, there's always ways around it. So is it really mandatory? Well, yeah, I mean, there were, there were nothing, you know, legally speaking, there has to be those exemptions for those uh, to to account for those human rights issues. Um, but but certainly, I mean, it, it doesn't it it still is a mandatory policy. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of important here to kind of uh, to kind of take it, take a step back and see what it all boils down to um, in the employment context is, is uh, employers have an obligation to keep their employees safe and to provide a safe and healthy work environment for all employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the mandatory vaccination policies are one step in that, um, in, in, in one way that they can make those workplaces safe. But, um, pu- you know, all the other public health uh, restrictions and guidelines that are, that are currently in place, those also need to be upheld in the, in the, uh, the workplace. Those are another way that employers can provide a safe and healthy work environment for their employees. So it is mandatory, um, but you do have to provide alternatives for those who have uh, legitimate excuses, whether it is documentation from a doctor or what have you. Yeah, and and I mean, I would also point to all the other uh, guidelines, so mask wearing, um, there's social distancing, um, uh, uh, COVID testing, that kind of thing. Those are all tools that employers are able to use in order to, to create that safe work environment. And and a safe work environment over and above the vaccination, if that's needed, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I mean, as it stands right now, only those industries that the government has spoken on and made mm-hmm. uh, vaccination pol- mandatory policies, um, you know, those vaccines are are one part of that whole puzzle. Uh, considering what you do, is this clear for you in your industry? <laughs> Um, or, or is this going to be, or is there going to be courtrooms filled with cases on this? I, I anticipate that there's going to be many uh, cases brought on this issue, um, but uh, you know we're we're really it, it's changing. The law is changing day to day, 
So while I can give you one uh, opinion yesterday, and the government speaks out and, and uh, legislates on it today, um, I think it's, it's quite, you know, employment lawyers are, are really have to keep beyond their toes at this point. But I do anticipate in terms of the um, exemptions and any kind of human rights violations, there will certainly be a, a lot of these uh, types of, of cases coming down the pipeline. So as far, and I, and I know this is outside your realm, but as far as the messaging that we should be trying to sell here, uh, should we not say uh, vaccines are mandatory, and especially in these industries, we want everybody in these industries vaccinated. However, if you've got this, that, or the other, you know, there is, for those people, uh, through human rights, an exemption. Wouldn't it just be on it better to say that as opposed to us arguing whether it's mandatory or it's not mandatory and having to call people like Mackenzie Irwin to figure out what's legal, what isn't legal here? I really wish it could be that simple, um, but unfortunately, uh, uh, it's not. And, and the, the approach that the government has taken is is kind of incremental, and it does cause yeah. a lot of confusion. Uh, as we move forward, are we going to learn anything from this? Are we going to learn how to make these mandatory without these loopholes? Uh, well, I think certainly once once these kinds of cases um, make their way through the court system and are, are litigated and our courts have had an opportunity to speak and interpret the, the legislation and, and really provide more clarity on it, I think going forward we'll have those cases to guide us in terms of, of if anything similar like this comes up uh, in the future. Will there always be loopholes when we use the word mandatory? Well, so certainly, I mean, mandatory policies do have to be subject to, um, you know, there's a balance between uh, competing rights here. You have to, you always do, you do always have to consider um, human rights, uh, a human rights aspect to every mandatory policy. So, of course, it's going to be, you know, um, we'll have to apply it on a case by case basis. um, And it will certainly be dependent on the facts of each case. But Um, But those are definitely considerations that must be um, taken into account. Say, I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation here, Mackenzie. And again, I'm fully vaccinated and I encourage everybody to do so. But say I'm a city employee. I say I work in the background. I'm not necessarily in the public. And for some whatever reason, I have decided I'm not going to get vaccinated. And, you know, my municipality, my government, my whoever, my employer has said, you've got to be vaccinated. So what do I do if... Uh, for me, it's not right for whatever reason, and my employer has demanded it. Uh, uh, this is going to sound cheesy, but contact an employment lawyer. Um, yeah. You know, these are definitely going to be um, very case-specific um, uh, and fact-specific cases yeah. as we come up. So I can't give you, um, you know, a broad answer yeah. on that because it will depend on each individual's um, circumstances and, and and their reasoning for for all of that. Is there a way we could clear up all of this mess? Uh, yeah, if, if the government provides clear and unequivocal legislation on it, um, that would certainly um, you know provide more clarity. Um, but again, as uh, you know, the law in Ontario, we're lucky that we get to. Um, you get to have the legislation, and then the courts also get to interpret um, that legislation. So uh, it would provide more clarity for us, for sure. Um, unfortunately, you know, our government's hands are tied in terms of they're making, they're, you know, they're kind of pushing it as we go along uh, with tight timelines. So, um, so they would help, but is it going to be the be-all, end-all? No, for sure not. And that's both provincial and federal? Correct. Yeah, there will always be some ambiguity and, and uh, you know, room for argument but and, and interpretation of, of legislation. But one good one first step would be having that clear and unequivocal legislation. Mackenzie Irwin with us, associate with Samfuro Tamarkin LLP, talking about the discussion around vaccines, mandate and employment. Mackenzie, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have, have a good rest of your day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.